welcome to The Professor and the Hack. I think this is uh, episode 11. Thank you, thank you, if you've stuck with us all the way from the beginning. I'm the Hack. I'm Hugh Rimminton, and with me is the uh, the good Professor PVO. Hello, Peter. G'day, Hugh. Great to be with you in this post-election climate. In this post-election climate. Now, it, it's intriguing because it, it's about the time for those of us in rugby league states where the NRL state of origin... You lot always exclude WA with your... Sporting analogies, but anyway, go on. So the state of origin is a big deal, right? So they've named the teams and everyone gets excited about the teams, but the actual game's not for some time off. And it seems like a metaphor for where we are in politics at the moment because we've got a much better idea of the teams, but the election is three years off, so the main game is some distance away. Well, and even the parliamentary sitting, the first parliamentary sitting's a long way off because they've got to sort out all the post-election details with the AEC. It's not until July at the earliest. And it looks as if the uh, a couple of senators are going to be uh, disappearing before they've even started. But we'll get onto that in just a moment. First of all, he's been crowned uh, the uh, the maverick from Marrickville. Anthony Albanese uh, will try to uh, improve Labor's lot. No surprises there. No surprises. In the end, he was in a one horse race, wasn't he? He won, but nobody else decided to contest it. Can he win? Can he win the election's a different matter. I'm talking about just becoming Labor leader. But winning the election, look, it's. I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, a lot of people wonder whether Albo is as popular as he gets talked about being because is that popularity a, a membership popularity which is not representative of the wider electorate? That is a genuine issue. Having said that, though, I think at this point in time he's probably their best chance. I mean, there are issues around, you know, where he sits philosophically. He's from the left of the party. He is the first member of the left in many decades as part of the organised left to go on and become Labor leader because a lot of people talk about Julia Gillard. She was a member of the left, but she wasn't an organiser. Albo really was, you know, Assistant Secretary in New South Wales, a true factional power broker of the left. That's not not something that Julia Gillard was. She just had the patronage of the left. But, look, you don't rule anyone out in this climate from being able to go on and win the election. That's one of the lessons, of course, with Bill Shorten not winning the election against Scott Morrison. But we've seen this before, 2004 when the Labor Party looked like it was in a disaster zone post the Latham election, they won three years later. 1993, the last unlosable election before Bill Shorten stole that mantle. John Hewson lost. The Liberals looked in disarray. Three years later, they won a thumping victory. So lots of people are talking about 1993, 2004. I wonder a little bit about 1998 uh, because that was an election where uh, the Labor Party very narrowly lost... I think that was one of those ones where they got the popular vote. Oh, they just certainly did. They got 51.1%. Quite extraordinary, actually. Not that dissimilar to where Scott Morrison landed. The difference was is Labor ended up with, like they have this time, a six in front of the number of seats that they picked up. And I think John Howard got 80 at the time, slightly more than Scott Morrison got this time. But John Howard only got it with 48.9% of the TPP. And that was Howard trying to sell the GST at that stage. He'd Absolutely. only been a one-term Prime Minister. Everyone thought that he was possibly a temporary Prime Minister. People were speaking in those days as Labor being the natural party of government in Australia because it had so many years there with uh, Hawke and Keating. Uh, and then after 98, there was this conviction descended upon the Labor Party that the next election was theirs for the taking because things were so close and, let's face it, no-one liked John Howard... And it didn't pan out that way. And I do wonder whether... I, I, I don't want to be dispiriting to already bruised supporters of the Labor side of politics, but Labor had an enormous chance this time because the government had spent so much of its time fighting with itself, toppling leaders and so on. 
And I do think that the things that have been weaknesses for Scott Morrison in this year will become strengths for him in three years' time in that he will have been, presumably, barring all kinds of other surprises, the Prime Minister by that stage for, mm. for nearly four years and he will look well settled and, and, and harder to dislodge in three years' time, not easier than he was in the election just gone. I agree with all of that as long as the economy chugs along nicely, which there are real question marks about. I mean, we're at zero inflation. There's the risk, therefore, of stagflation or deflation and there are concerns you would think in some quarters. I hear people in the in the finance sector talking about it being a sort of a, a GF, GFC-style climate. Now, it's not exactly analogous, but there are worries there. Now, the issue for Scott Morrison and I guess by extension Josh Frydenberg and the whole government is they might get their first surplus, but in three years' time you could easily see it dipping back into deficit. That would be a problem for them because that almost then becomes the rhetorical equivalent uh, of when John Howard poked Paul Keating about five minutes of economic sunshine. Different issue, of course. We weren't talking about surplus. We were talking about economic growth. But there are those concerns. It would be ironic, though, wouldn't it, Hugh, if the very thing that were to bring Scott Morrison unstuck in three years' time was the economy when that was the message that he pushed so hard to actually claim the victory in the unlikely win that he got, uh, you know, just very recently. No, they can shape that, don't they? They, they say, look... Uh, don't trust yes, Labor, they'd do worse. Yeah, <laughs> would, aren't you lucky you had us because how much worse it would be after Labor. Let's talk a little bit about where we are because we've got two leaders now neither of whom is really very well known by the public. I don't think the public really knows who Scott Morrison is. They've sort of started to get this Christian daggy dad type of guy, mm. a, sort of an eternal sunshine optimist uh, who's come through. Albo himself is a, an interesting character. He has a genuine family story of having come up from um, Housing Commission uh, flat with a solo mum and is now aspiring to the highest office in the land. From the left but not exactly, at least not in his mature political life, a kind of a right-on warrior for the green left. If anything, the suggestion is, is that Albo is more willing to step towards the right in terms of his uh, policy leanings now. Um, you know, whereas Shorten was from the right, arguably, some people said, went lean too far to the left had he got off it. So what can we really expect out of Albo? I think we can expect pragmatism out of Albo, which will be interesting because that's what Scott Morrison is as well. He's a forever pragmatist. So we're going to have an interesting contest there. The risk for Albanese is that he becomes Scott Morrison light in the same way that Kim Beasley was seen as Howard light and it never worked for him. The Economic Times, which I mentioned before, will play a little bit of a role in that because if they work against Scott Morrison, then that could work for Anthony Albanese, notwithstanding what Liberals always say about Labor's economic management, but he will be a pragmatist. He won't be an ideologue. The, the passion that he has, I think, that is more ideological is social justice-based rather than, as you say, that sort of green lefty approach. So he's no radical, even though he was when he was younger, and, you know, he's been in politics so long now. You know, what is I think he's part of the class of 96. So he's one of the longer-serving member, longer members of both sides of politics, quite frankly, now. He's not far off being the uh, elder statesman of the House. So he will be pragmatic and he's shown it before when he was trying to negotiate around climate change uh, in his Leader of the House role during the Rudd years with Malcolm Turnbull and Malcolm Turnbull's then Chief of Staff in opposition, Chris Kenny, now the Sky News commentator. Mm. Uh, they were part of that sort of pragmatic clique trying to get a deal done um, but in the end, of course, the Liberals blew up Malcolm Turnbull and the rest is history and we still don't have any consensus on that sort of issue. So we'll see where he goes. Tax will be his first 
test, but that kind of goes a little bit into his social justice sphere. So if we're going to see an, an ideological Albanese, that could be one of the areas where we see it. He said that he wants to make haste slowly in policy. He's made haste slowly in his career, as you've pointed out. It takes He's taken a long time to get where he is, but he is where he is. Can I make a quick comment on that, Hugh? This is something that I think listeners will find interesting. The Karen Middleton biography of Anthony Albanese, the last sentence or two sentences in it, uh, her noting, I'm paraphrasing here, that when it comes to his political ambition, he's a patient man. That's because he's a South Sydney supporter. You have to be. <laughs> So I think that's just become interesting in the context of him finally becoming Labor leader. You're being very rude to your West Australian uh, <laughs> listeners. Just, I'm, I'm copying you now on this. There, of course, yes, the South Sydney, the battling team. Of that's because over yeah. in WA we don't have to wait long for premierships. The West Coast get there fairly oh, frequently. Yeah, 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 yeah. Reigning premiers, just saying. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about tax okay. because this is going to be the first big challenge is, uh, in fact, this is an awkward thing for the government because they're already going to be forced into delaying these low- and middle-income tax offset breaks that they promised were coming in the budget and promised through the election. Is that a broken promise, do you think? Well, we, well I've nailed our colours to the mask because I reckon it is. If you don't deliver it in the way you delivered it, you've broken the promise. Because I, I was getting monstered by the Prime Minister's office uh, for a story that referred to them as a broken promise. Uh, if it was Labor, would they have argued that it was a broken promise? Oh, well, they... they, they argued, I'm they, sure they would have. They argued that Labor was going to bring in death duties, which was just an out-and-out -out lie. Labor argued that they were, in 2016, going to privatise Medicare, which they're was so, also an out-and-out -out lie. So and then suddenly, you know, my one turn of phrase in my story was, was outrageous. Uh, look... They are a precious bunch of... Aren't they? Because you know how they would have run Let's hope that they if it was the Labor Party. Let's hope they do. Here's that, you <laughs> fellas. Um, you know, if this was Labor had failed to deliver a tax cut as described oh. at the time, that have gone for for you know gone for the cleaners on it. So you know, we wear all this. It's all in the for, in the good game. For what it's worth, though, I, I, look, I, I do think it is technically a broken promise because the promise was that they would deliver it before July one, but it's not what you'd call an egregious broken promise, the reason being that they're going to sort of stuff uh, the filling back into the jar because they're, they're going to retrospectively put the laws in so that people they've get what they were blown, supposed to They've blown the process mm. uh, and that's made it awkward for them, but they're still committed to the idea. Uh, there is some technical question about how they are going to get around it. It is more complicated than just saying we'll do it retrospectively. There's talk about having to change the way in which we send our tax returns in and a whole bunch of other well, stuff. They, they, say that the, the, they say that the ATO are going to do it all automatically and that people do, aren't required to do anything, but that's we'll, we'll see how but, that works. Yeah, and I'm not sure that's exactly how it's being seen mm. in the ATO, that it's a bit more complicated than that and you may have to put in two returns and a whole bunch of other stuff. Potential accountancy fees, oh, who knows? Yes, all good. Yeah, that get, gets eaten up by accountancy fees. But um, more substantially, the government remains committed to this notion that all their tax cuts which they laid out in the budget, which we must remind ourselves involve in their fullness, if you go to the third tranche, disproportionately benefit people on higher incomes and lower incomes. So that the totality of their tax cut is to give deeper, not just in dollar terms, but proportional tax cuts to the wealthy rather than the poor. And this is what they're going to promote and push in front of the parliament. And they're going to say, all of this has to be dealt with as a single piece. What does... Labor do about that? Well, the suggestion from Albanese so far is that he will try to force them to split it. But there's a difference between him running that line 
right up until the end and then buckle in if the government holds its line and it makes it a black or white thing, you either pass all of them or you reject all the tax cuts. I reckon when push comes to shove, this early on he'll pass. He'll let them pass. Labor will pass tax cuts I that benefit think, the rich. I think so. I mean, Doesn't my prediction that... skills have been great lately, but <laughs> I, I, so, they're probably, so they're probably not going to do that now. But, it, look, the reason I say that is because I'm not sure that they want to have that fight now and then be labelled forever and a day as having blocked tax cuts, even though you and I know that the government are playing games if they refuse to break up the specific tax cuts and, and say you either take it all or you reject it all. That's political gamesmanship. But I don't know if Anthony Albanese is going to want to be the blocker at that point. He's been using rhetoric lately that, you know, one thing he's learned from the Abbott era is that people don't want that kind of divisive politics. So maybe that means that when it does become a make-or-break moment, if the government stays firm, maybe they will buckle. I'll put the counter view. And that is that they don't like and they should not like as a Labor movement tax cuts that disproportionately benefit the rich oh, over I, I time. Agree. I here's agree. The, but here's the problem, because if they then go into the next election or start to make a rhetorical argument that the uh, Conservative parties are there for the big end of town again or, or that they benefit the rich or whatever, Scott Morrison's perfectly in his, in his, in his right to turn around and say, well, if you didn't like it, why'd you vote for it? Because mm. they voted for it. And and so that's well, the difficulty for them is that they'll forever, if, once you've voted for it, you forever own it. Which Peter Costello used to use quite effectively against Labor from time to time. They disliked what we're doing so much that they voted for it in the parliament. But they're in a catch-22 then, aren't they? Because they either cop that criticism, you think it's so bad but you voted for it, but equally if you then block the whole thing because the government won't decouple the, the different parts, but, but, then you're accused of blocking low-income tax sure. cuts. Sure, but is it not a reasonable proposition if you have any powers of persuasion at all to say to the Australian people... Uh, it's a big if, Hugh. It is do a big any, if. Do any of them have but that? But are, are we giving up on the argument that people should be in a position in politics to persuade? And if they do, it's... I've, it's, I've given up on it. <laughs> are you kidding? I, 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 I can't think of a politician out there that could sell me water in the desert. Here's an opportunity for them to prove that the Hawkean age of persuading people in politics counts for something because here is what the argument... If you're Labor, you say, I support your low and middle income tax cuts. I will vote for them tomorrow. Here's my vote. You have it. You have it in the Senate. You have it wherever you want it. But you will not get our vote for a proposition which is actually demonstrably a difficult argument to make, and that is that you should disproportionately give tax cuts mm. oh, to the yeah, rich. But not only that, that you're going to lock in these tax cuts with all the budgetary implications years off into the future, into 24 2024-25, regardless of what might happen to the economy, and you're going to lock yourself into that. That's, that's a poor way to make policy. I, we, we are in furious agreement, but I'm not sure uh, that the Labor Party will necessarily be up for the fight after the government won an election taking this tax package that it put forward in the April budget to the people and it won an unlikely victory. Now, I know it's more complicated than that and they basically won the victory on shortens unpopularity and a scare campaign against Labor. But I think this feeds into that scare campaign against Labor because the fear that people have is that, which has been instilled by Morrison, is that Labor are higher taxing. So if they're blocking tax cuts, don't get complicated on me, Hugh. I think people go, oh, they're blocking tax cuts. And I'll tell you who knows how to deliver a simple message. We know after saying the same thing over and over again on the campaign trail, it's Scott Morrison. Morrison, the marketing man. I want to talk about the uh, framing of the Senate people who are already setting to leave the Senate as these jobs get dangled in uh, in the United States. 
uh, and also a little bit about what we've learnt about our country as a result of this election. But this podcast has been so successful, PVO, we actually have ads. So let's stop for a moment and listen to one. <laughs> Channel 10 is bringing the fun to 6 o'clock weeknights. It's the new show where you've got to think fast or you won't last. Celebrity Name Game. It's the most fun you can have at 6 o'clock weeknights on Channel 10. Welcome back to The Professor and the Hack. Uh, I'm Hugh Rimmington. I'm the Hack with uh, PVO, The Professor. Peter Van Onselen, let's briefly touch on the Senate makeup because some personalities, even as new people are coming in, some are leaving, so it seems. Arthur Sinodinus off to Washington, Mitch Fifield uh, off to, um, it seems, New York. Yes, he, the UN. Let me tell you a fun fact about Mitch Fifield. He's the last member of Parliament to get the old super scheme. Now, there's plenty more that are still in the Parliament, but he was the last arrival because he filled a casual Senate vacancy out of Victoria right when the debate was on and when, when not Scott Morrison, when uh, John Howard acquiesced to what Mark Latham had to say about cutting the generous super scheme. And it counted from the 2004 election. And it was just before that that Mitch Fifield filled the casual Senate vacancy. Um, but I can tell you that uh, sources close to Senator Fifield tell me that there was some very swift inquiries by the new senator to double-check which pension scheme he was under uh, on arrival because the difference would mean just having had 15% super lobbed into his account over the lifetime of his representation versus what he will get, which is something like, what is it, 60%, 75% of his highest salary for the rest of his life. Which is not a bad Irrespective of other jobs. Not bad at all. So he's the last beneficiary of that scheme. Well, lucky old Mitch, eh? Uh, he, he, he's... Been a minister of the crown. It seems that he's now off to uh, to be in New York and hobnob with uh, all the great leaders of uh, of the world. And he's got a nice pension to boot, and a massive pension to boot. And and not only that, but uh, Anthony Albanese in the um, in the course of trying to sort of indicate that there was chaos still in the government, talked about the uh, loss of the extraordinary amount of talent off the coalition front bench. Uh, he mentioned Julie Bishop, Christopher Pine but also Mitch Fifield, and I think Mitch would have been uh, deeply warmed by the thought that for the first time in his life the uh, he was described as talent. leader of the Labor Party has <laughs> called him an extraordinary loss of talent. Well, you know, Mitch Fifield, I, I might be unfair about the first of these examples, but he, as I understand it, um, decided to shift from Nelson to Turnbull uh, and then from Turnbull to Abbott and then he went from Abbott to Turnbull and then he went from Turnbull to Dutton and then he managed to shift 24 hours later from Dutton to Morrison. So uh, I tell you what, if you are jumping over one of those trenches, I'm not sure you want Mitch Fifield by your side. Well, look which way he jumps and then jump the same way. He'll, he'll do, he'll, he'll do right well idea. at the UN, you know, <laughs> like where, where you might have to sort of change horses midstream. And Arthur Sidadina says, in many ways, not to knock Mitch Fifield, but a, but a more substantial loss. He, he, was, uh, he was a guy who knew how to fight... Uh, Really, really tough fights when you have chief of staff to John Howard and, and he was always on, a, on the accounts of the people who were there, just, you know, they called him the grown-up in the room. Mm. Not, he never jumped at shadows. He was never spooked by loud noises. He, he always kept a focus on what was going on and gave good counsel. I do you think he was a better chief of staff to Howard, though, than he ever was parliamentary representative? And I don't say that to, to, to have too much of a go at him because he was such a good chief of staff over such a long time to John Howard. 
But then I, I actually thought he would have a more successful parliamentary career than he's had. I mean, well, I know he's had, didn't help. I was about to say, he's obviously had complications. He had career complications at one point and then obviously uh, having cancer was a, a massive issue for him over the last couple of years. But I'm really talking before that. You know, I mean, he, he was already, if you like, a little bit tainted um, before then missing out on that career opportunity because of his health situation. It's a bit... It was, it was a bit surprising to me. Well, he turned he up as a, a witness better. in the ICAC and, as mm. you said, always a witness. He was never, he was never in the gun. Um, and that probably took a little bit of this, the steam out of it. He had to step back a little bit during that period. But, but you're right, adult in the room, definitely. And when he returned from his ill health, uh, he said in the late stages of that campaign that he believed the coalition would win it. And unlike others on the coalition benches, when he said it, he, he said it in a way that looked like he genuinely mm. believed it. So he was definitely one of the true believers. He's going to be lost whether, he, whether you know, the degree of the loss might be debated and we'll never really know, but he, he will be lost from those inner councils of the government by being away in Washington as the ambassador replacing Joe Hockey. Important role, but yeah. I, I agree. I think in the politics of what he could offer... Um, not so much necessarily what he would or wouldn't offer running a particular department as a minister. I think the counsel behind the scenes that he would provide to someone like Scott Morrison would have been invaluable going forward, a bit like what he did in that chief of staff role for John Howard before he even entered parliament. The same role that he tried to play for Malcolm Turnbull, but Malcolm Turnbull isn't perhaps the best listener uh, or the best taker on board or of, uh, of ideas and, and counsel... So Sinodinas would have been a more effective uh, right-hand person in that role for a, a Scott Morrison figure, I think, than he had been uh, and tried to be for Malcolm Turnbull, who he was closer to. So suggestions that Jim Molan might make a return? Uh, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, look, again, my traditional kiss of death, he's probably now assured of the spot, but uh, he's still in the hard right uh, and I think that the moderates still control the numbers. So uh, Richard Shield, who I think just missed out on pre-selection in Wentworth against Dave Sharma. He's going to throw his hat in the ring, as I understand it, for the New South Wales Senate spot. There will be others as well. There may well be a prominent woman, surprise, surprise, in the Liberal Party. So uh, we'll see whether Jim Mullen gets in. I mean, he obviously has the benefit of having been a senator, um, but there's a reason he came fourth in the unwinnable spot twice in a row, uh, and that's because he doesn't have the numbers factionally. Well, Sarah Henderson didn't have the numbers to hold her seat of Karangamite, and she's being talked about as being potentially the other... Um, the other senator might get a Senate position. I had a missed call from her the other day, which I haven't returned yet. I, am I not supposed to say that? But I, went, I, I wondered when I saw that missed call whether... She Sarah Henderson, I'd her call you back in, if you want to call me. <laughs> Forget PVO. He's, uh, he's not to be trusted on these things. But, yeah, indeed. Um, <laughs> better call her back and find out. Um, there was a lot of talk, though, we should say, about her running for the Senate going back to when it looked like Karanga might. I mean, in the end, she just lost it, but it looked like it was deeply unwinnable. And she was hardening in a lot of her media appearances her position on the right in a way that she hadn't really done in the past. And some people in the Victorian Liberal Party suggested to me that that was because she'd written off her chances in Karangamite, where you can't do that and be so ideologically hard right in a marginal seat, but you do need to do that for Senate pre-selection. They thought she was eyeing it off, not because they thought Mitch Fifield would necessarily go, but because they were thinking about the next round, whenever it might be. Yeah, at some stage. Um, let's... Let's look to changes in the Labor Party. We didn't mention it. I'll return to it now in the leadership because Richard Miles is, is going to be the deputy leader. Uh, it means that they've got two men. And on that, it is with one brief period where Kevin Rudd came back as Prime Minister with Albanese as his deputy and therefore deputy Prime Minister, 
that was only a matter of months. Other than that couple of months in 2013, this will be the first time that the Labor Party hasn't had a female as either leader or deputy leader since 2001. Mm. Does it mean... I mean, Richard Miles was, uh, gave an interview as he, as he was confirmed in the deputy uh, leadership and uh, asked about numbers. He said, look, we've got 50% plus or minus of the, of the Labor Party is in Parliament is female. But I, I wonder if they don't lose a little bit out of that because women look at that and go, yeah, OK, so we've got equality. There's 50%. That's great. You're doing far better than the other side. But isn't it a bit like real life where the women make up 50% but the top jobs still go to the blokes? Have they lost a capacity to... Um, uh, to really make an angle against the coalition? I don't think so. I'll tell you why. Uh, because the coalition still does have such a profound problem with the number of women it's got. It picked up a few more women than it expected to at the election because it had a bunch of women running in marginal seats that looked unwinnable, which they ended up picking up. Those women will go out with the electoral tide the next time that there's a swing and that's one of the problems is that Liberals dragoon females into marginal seats, which mean that their parliamentary careers are truncated necessarily and even if they get into ministries, they get washed out with the electoral tide too quickly for them to really forge longer-term careers. This happens a lot on the right of politics and I remember even in the Howard years it happened. On the Labor side, they do have 50% female representation. They do have strong women who may not be leader or deputy but Christina Keneally has been talked about as deputy Senate leader whether her or Don Farrell get it. Uh, they've got Penny Wong, who I think most people agree should probably be Labor leader. She's just in the wrong house. Tanya Plibersek is only not the deputy because Albanese is the leader. You can't have them side by side in, in a Sydney and she'll continue to be a senior figure. And then you add to that the likes of Catherine King. There's just a, a plethora of stri- Claire O'Neill who almost got the deputy position but Richard Miles is going to get it ahead of her. There are some really, really high-profile good women and there are numerically a lot of women in the ranks, Amanda Rishworth, another front bencher out of South Australia. You know, there's a lot of them. So, look, if there's an optics issue to some extent because both leaders are men, well, it's the same case in the Liberal Party uh, as well as with the Deputy Prime Minister from the Nationals. So I don't think they suffer from it because I think voters know that the Labor Party has a quota and whether they agree or disagree with that, they are serious about getting women not just into Parliament but into senior spots as well. Not that it gets them elected as a government. Well, not this seem time. to be as influential as, uh, as, as people might have supposed. Not when you've got Chloe Shorten's husband running for Prime Minister. <laughs> um, Richard Miles, in some ways, is a diplomat. He's a natural diplomatic figure, generally. He, he served effectively as a diplomat, as, that, um, as, as a minister for, uh, for Pacific Affairs, mm. international affairs, with a particular focus on the Pacific, um, when Labor was last in office. Interesting character, went to Geelong Grammar. So you've got uh, the Housing Commission guy from Sydney and the Geelong Grammar kid from, uh, from Victoria. But um, he did make a what turned out to be a terrible boo-boo before the election, which he concedes was, a, was uh, as he describes it, tone-deaf and regrettable in that he seemed to be dancing on the grave of thermal coal, heaven forbid, uh, going before the election, saying it was a good thing that it appeared as though um, coal prices were tanking and that meant that uh, I think the implication was is that the Adani mine might be not, um, mm. uh, not viable. Uh, he's now gone back onto uh, the correct language now in the Labor Party, which is that uh, coal, I'm going to quote here, coal clearly is going to play a significant part in the future energy mix of Australia and is clearly going to be a significant part of our economy. They've really been hit by that anti-coal thing. 
haven't they? Oh, and particularly up in Queensland. I mean, their primary vote in Queensland of 27%. 20% in the seat of Dawson. It's just it's it's extraordinary. I mean, even their national primary vote, I know I'm straying here, Hugh, but 33%. They get public funding on election campaigns or on that the parties get is based on their vote and they have to make an estimate on what they think that vote will be for what their spend then is. Now, the Liberals probably underestimated theirs and Labor almost certainly would have overestimated theirs under getting 33% primary. They must have assumed they were going to get 37 or more. That's millions of dollars that puts them in the in the red uh, from what they would have spent versus where they're now as a party. But I'm getting away from your point. Queensland is, is a real problem state for them and coal is a big issue there. It's not just Queensland, but it certainly is in North Queensland. And, yeah, they've got a problem there and evidenced by the fact that you've got this backflip without grace from... Uh, from Richard Miles. Mm. Well, they're the guys who are going to lead it. I have to say that someone came up to me in the course of the last week, someone who listens to this podcast, God bless you, one and all, um, talking about the election results, saying, I can't believe it. I thought Australia was an egalitarian society. I th- you know, th- this person thought that l- the Labor message of essentially putting taxes or restructuring taxes so that the top end of town... Um, gets less of a free ride as as they perceived it and that that would then go down, would would suit something that's deep in the Australian soul, Mm. which is fundamentally egalitarian. We tell ourselves we are egalitarian. And then I discovered a thing just in the last couple of days uh, by a bloke called Gert Hofstede. Will you indulge me for a minute while I tell you about this bloke? See, I I was looking into this earlier today when you told me about it. (laughs) So I should probably indulge you on it. <laughs> so this I've guy, never heard of it before. This guy in the 1960s worked for IBM and IBM was a multinational company and he worked somewhere or other and he was trying to figure out in HR where all the different people working for IBM around the world, these cultural difficulties that within a multinational company have to deal with. So he started to do some research into the IBM workforce and he soon found out that depending on the country that they were in, there were distinctly different cultural underpinnings. And he came up with five or six different distinctions. But one of them that he came up with was between, he put them into two different piles, individualism or collectivism. And he realised that across the world, some people in some cultures are naturally individualistic and others are collectivist. And he eventually, this has become, there's a whole body of work that was started off by this. But he listed off all these countries according to their individualism or their collectivism. And he discovered that, it'll be no surprise to anyone, that the highest ranked country in the world for individualism is the United States. It gets a score of 91. That does not surprise me. The second highest score in the world for individualism is Australia. And that did surprise me when you told me me that earlier today. Because it goes against this notion of uh, egalitarianism and it also suggests that... Labor is wrong in thinking that essentially we are collectivist in our nature. Could explain their problems on the election campaign. Could explain their problems on the campaign. It could suggest why it is that when Scott Morrison won, he turns up and he says basically this dividing of the country as they perceive it, this class warfare, as John Howard calls it, doesn't sit. And maybe they are right and maybe that's something that Labor needs to look at a bit more closely, that we are far more individualistic than our myths uh, lead us to believe. Yeah, and, and I guess that that fits with the level of American influence in Australia, even though we sort of naturally assume 
that that doesn't come into it. Can I make a quick comment? I know we're running out of time, but you the go. front bench reshuffle of the government, Hugh, Stuart Robert in Cabinet, what on earth is that all about? I mean, we're talking about a bloke who knows how to get dumped from the ministry and, yeah, whatever his dealings uh, around China that he got himself into trouble for and then you've got his tens of thousands of dollars for his home internet that we still don't quite understand how that was accrued. Wasn't there a Rolex watch in there somewhere? There was a Rolex watch in there somewhere as well, uh, a gift which, you know, is not appropriate, some would say. Uh, but on top of all of that, now he's the cabinet minister in charge of the NDIS. I'm sure that puts all the minds of people who require it at ease. Uh, you've also then got... Uh, you, know, you know what his chief uh, qualification is? There is no one closer personally... To Scott Morrison. To yeah. Scott Morrison and Stuart Robert. And when you saw them together when they were in opposition back in the Labor days, yep. they were always, always close to each other. And, yep. and they have similar religious convictions too. Uh, but then you've got Ben Morton. He travelled on the bus and the aeroplane the whole campaign with the Prime Minister. Surprise, surprise, he got uh, a promotion as well. Poor old Barnaby Joyce, the drought envoy, he found out on social media that he's no longer the drought envoy. It might have been via Sky News online uh, on Twitter. And then uh, Richard Colbeck, I think is his name, um, he is now the youth minister at a youthful 61 years of age. Never let it be said there's not a good laugh to be had in politics <laughs> that a conservative Tasmanian gent in his 60s is now our minister for youth. <laughs> and on that deep chuckle, we might leave it for now. Thank you for listening. PVO. Talk soon. Talk to you soon. Listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.